Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic, and this week we're talking about America. Ted Levin makes the case for the timber rattlesnake, which might play into our national mythology more than the bald eagle, and Terry Tempest-Williams lets us in on the best-kept secrets of America's national parks, which celebrate their 100th birthday this year. But first, we sat down with James Conaway, who wrote an essay in the summer issue of the magazine called Waiting for Fire. It's set in the Napa vineyard of Randy and Lori Dunn, during the midst of the Valley Fire in Northern California, which left four dead and 2,000 buildings destroyed in September of last year. Thanks, Jim, for sitting down with us. So first, how did you end up in the middle of 76,000 acres on fire in Napa Valley? I came there purely out of friendship, really, for Randy Dunn. I've known him for years, and I was out there at the time, a year ago, working on a final volume of my Napa trilogy, which is going to come out sometime next year. And I was down at the other end of Napa Valley, about 20 miles from Randy, and I just happened to look at my phone and read about the fire that was just to the north. And I thought, Randy must be in the very close to this fire. So I called him up. I asked him what was going on, and he said, we don't really know. You can't get any hard information, but we're we're in the path of the fire, and my wife, Lori, has already left, and my daughter, who lives down the road, has left, and people are getting off of Howell Mountain, which is where his vineyard is, right up on the top. And I said, well, uh, I assume you have a lot of help up there. And he said, no, actually, I don't have any help. Uh, so I said, well, do you, would you like a pair of hands to help? And he said, being a laconic, sort of understated guy, Sure, I could use another pair of hands. So I put on my hiking boots and got a hat and a jug of water and got in the car and drove up. And people were streaming off Howell Mountain, and I, nobody was going up but me, I noticed, which was a little bit uneasy-making. And I got up there, and Randy was out on a ancient caterpillar that he bought years ago building fire lanes on either side of his road. So I thought, well, this is a bigger deal than I thought. And it was at that time that I learned that the sheriff had come at 2 in the morning, wake them up. Laurie, his wife, had gone around the house collecting photographs of all the people in the family that she didn't want 
to be consumed in a fire and packing them in the car and other things and had gone down off the mountain with all this material. And Randy was up there sort of by himself. So at that point, I pitched in and there was a lot to do. It was a very odd feeling. I'd never been that close to the fire without, to a big fire without knowing exactly where, what was going to happen. Fire, forest fires are very, are highly dependent upon the wind. And the wind that had blown the forest fire just to our north and totally consumed one little town, I mean, just burned it to a crisp and killed a few people. It was being driven at that time, as far as we knew, in our direction. We weren't that far away. We were a few miles away from the fire. And up on the ridge, fire burns very fast, particularly when it's going uphill, which is where they were. So we set about working on this and getting ready. You dig trenches around the house. You cut overhanging boughs. You make sure you have a water source. He had an ancient fire engine that he had bought cheaply from Mike Robbins, who was a one-time vintner in the old days who had started a whose place was used for a soap opera called Falcon Crest. So we got that thing going, filled up the tank, pulled out these ancient cloth hoses, and there was ash in the air. You couldn't see it coming down, but it collected on car hoods and on your sunglasses. And I started thinking, what is this going to be like if it comes? In a way, you're kind of daring fire because it's so dependent upon the wind and very easily can change and go in the other direction, but perhaps not. And they could have lost their house. They could have lost a couple of million dollars worth of Cabernet Sauvignon. They could have lost everything, really, that they had built over the years. And make a long story short, I ended up staying all day. And one point, the sheriff came up late in the day and said, the road's being evacuated. Are you going to leave? And Randy thought about it, and he said, uh, maybe. And the sheriff said, is that a yes or a no? And Randy said, that's a no. So he didn't have time to deal with, you know, Randy Dunn. He had other things to do, but he, I'm sure he remembers that. The sheriff does. He got in his car and floored it, left in a cloud of dust. And we worked into the dark. At one point, he said, well... If it gets really bad, we can wade out into the middle of the pond that only comes up to about our chests, and uh, we could probably survive there. But the real problem, of course, is smoke inhalation. But he said, actually, I only have one gas mask. (laughs) So I had this vision of us being out there swapping a gas mask back and forth. Uh, You can deal with that sort of stress when the sun is up. When sun starts going down, you really reevaluate it. You know, do I want to wake up, die of smoke inhalation at one thirty or 2.30 in the morning? And so we went in and made some hamburgers, had a little wine. He, well, actually had a, a margarita, and then we had a little wine. And, and at one point, I just thought, well, now's the time to leave if you're going to leave. And I thought, but if I don't leave, I can have another glass of his, uh, of his wine, and, uh, which is what happened. And then I went to bed. And the next day, I woke up very much alive and very much relieved that Randy's uh, place had survived. So the million-dollar question, of course, is you've made it. Obviously, you're here. You didn't die of smoke inhalation. But did the wine make it? The wine made it. 
bottled wine is pretty safe in these caves they've that they've dug all over Napa Valley, but the real danger, uh, if the fire doesn't reach you, but there's a lot of smoke, is that it can ruin the harvest. But because of the direction of the the wind, actually, what what saved Randy Dunn's place and everybody up there on Howell Mountain this time was that there was a minute change in the direction of the wind during the night. So the smoke went in another direction. It started blowing toward the east where there are no vineyards. So interestingly enough, uh, vineyards are really very good fire breaks because if a forest fire comes through and you're in the middle of a vineyard, your chances of surviving, if you can survive the smoke and the heat, are quite good because there's no ground cover. So it's a very expensive fire break. So it occurred to me while I was doing this that fire these days is a metaphor for all the bad stuff that is related either directly or indirectly to climate change that's coming. If you use it as a metaphor, it, then everybody is waiting for fire. It's not just people directly in their path. And so that, for me, was kind of a revelation. I thought even if I, where I live far away, I'm safe from fire, but there are other inherent disasters in this phenomenon it was a great education in how one gets ready for fire in the event that you have to face it. A literal fire at any rate. Yes, a literal fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for sitting down with me, Jim, and talking about this, this story, and good luck with the book. Oh, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. If you can't wait to read more about Napa, check out Jim's essay in our summer issue, Waiting for Fire, or pick up one of the first two books in his nonfiction trilogy, Napa, the Story of an American Eden, or The Far Side of Eden. They're social and environmental histories of a place, and not just for the enophiles among you, though you might also learn some fancy terminology. Our next guest originally hails from Utah. She's best known for writing beautiful, sweeping books about the American West. But for her latest, The Hour of Land, Terry Tempest Williams spreads her wings over the entire span of America's national parks, from the Grand Tetons to the Gulf Islands and the Gates of the Arctic, as well as a few that you've probably never even heard of. It's a great answer to the question of whether our national parks are still America's best idea 100 years after they were founded. Thanks for sitting down with me. Thank you so much for asking. So in the Hour of Land, you write about 12 of our national parks, which span all four corners of America and lots of places in between. You write in the introduction that this project tested your limitations as a writer, that you thought it would be easy and almost exuberant, but that you came up against some challenges. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think every writer has to ask themselves with each project, by what authority do I write this book? And it was very clear to me that, you know, I'm not a historian, I'm not a scientist, I'm not engaged in public policy in Washington, and I don't work for the National Park Service. Uh, I'm a citizen of this country. Um, I'm writing out of love, and the authority from which I write is as a storyteller. You do talk to a lot of National Park workers and activists and integrate these subjects into the narrative. So how did you decide where to fit these pieces into the narrative about the parks at large? It's a great question. Uh, you know, I think each park asked 
to have a different story told. And each chapter, um, I hope, has an integrity to the park under exploration. So for me, Grand Teton National Park is my mother park. It's where our family has migrated for years. Not a day, not a year of my life has has passed without a view of the Grand Teton. So that chapter is about family. Uh, I entered Big Bend National Park on the edge of the Rio Grande with beginner's eyes, and I think it holds all the characteristics of poetry. A chapter like Gettysburg is, is written in seasons because I think each season shifts in that bloodied landscape where they say that turkey vultures still have a memory of carrion. So it's a puzzle. It's it's about listening. And I think more than anything, I realized that this book is about subversives, subversive park rangers like Valerie Naylor, who was the superintendent of Theodore Roosevelt National Park, John D. Rockefeller, who surreptitiously bought up lands under the Snake River Land Company in Grand Teton National Park, to our president, Barack Obama, who in 2012, as a former community organizer, created a national monument to celebrate another community organizer, Cesar Chavez. So whether it's national park employees or someone like Tim DeChristopher, uh, who bought up oil and gas leases as an act of civil disobedience in 2008, and each individual I spoke with carries a piece of that mosaic. How did you choose which of those parks you were going to visit, and were there any that didn't make the list? There's so many that didn't make the list. Uh, I think I, you know, I knew the parks that were skin, blood, flesh to me. Grand Teton National Park, Canyonlands National Park, where we live in Castle Valley, Utah, in southern Utah. Um, Acadia, a landscape that our family has frequented for years. There were other parks that I had never been to like Gates of the Arctic, or Gettysburg. And then there were the parks that I had been to but wanted to explore more fully. And then there was Effigy Mounds National Monument on the border of Iowa and Wisconsin and the great Mississippi River that I had never even heard of. And honestly, if you were to ask me out of the 12 national parks that that I chose, that was the big surprise to me. Um, and I would list that as one of my top five most amazing places I've ever been, to see those effigy mounds in the shapes of bears and wolves and snakes and, and birds with a wingspan of over 200 feet. You walk those effigies with your feet as a prayer and think of the Ho-Chunk people. You know, we talk about how our parks are overcrowded, and I was recently in Yosemite, and at one point I thought, really, what's the difference between Yosemite Village and Disneyland? Um, but then you go to a park like Effigy Mounds, and literally there is nobody there. Brooke and I rose at dawn and walked for 12 miles, and we were met with birds, indigo buntings, rose-breasted grosbeaks, the wind. Yeah, but even in a place like Yosemite or Yellowstone, that magic is still available. It's just a little bit further off the beaten path. I think that's right, and I have come to appreciate parks like Yellowstone, Yosemite, Grand Canyon um, as places of pilgrimage. And if I go with that expectation, then I, I feel very kindly toward my fellow species. If I go with the idea that I'm going to have a wilderness experience, then, you know, I can be less than generous. 
So I wanted to ask about specifically your visit to Teddy Roosevelt National Park with your dad. As you said, he's an oil and gas man, and you're an environmentalist. One of your brothers even worked in the back in oil fields that you visited on that trip to Teddy Roosevelt Park. Do you feel like anything differentiates your appreciation of the national parks from your father's? I really don't. My father loves these parks. Uh, he was known when he was in college as Teton Tempest. You know, every Friday night when he was done laying pipe in the trench, you know, he and his buddies drove up to Jackson, Wyoming and camped Friday night, hiked all day Saturday and Sunday, and they were back, you know, at 6 a.m. On, on Monday. My father knows that landscape far better than I ever will. Um, and I think even with Teddy Roosevelt, when he saw the scale and the rapidity of the Bakken, when we were there, they were taking out a million barrels of oil a day. The workers were were living 12 men in a storage unit without windows. There's something deeply disturbing about that. And my father was, was the most upset um, between Valerie, the superintendent, and myself. You know, there seems to be like this knee-jerk reaction, like people within oil industry, within coal industry, within natural gas industry can't really collaborate with environmentalists. But collaboration is a huge theme in your book, structurally, from including photographs and poetry with your own writing, and then also thematically with stories of American Indian tribes working with state organizations on a plan for the Black Ears National Monument, and uh, in other ways, too. How do you think collaboration plays into the future of the national parks? I think national parks have always been collaborative because it's taken um, people with vision, people with money, people on the ground, people in local communities, and people in Washington to make these things happen. And the example that you give, Bears Ears National Monument proposal that is being led by 25 tribes in the Colorado Plateau, Navajo, Diné, uh, Hopi, Zuni, the Ute tribes among them, is such a beautiful example of this. And it's also a beautiful example of an evolving idea that the very people that the National Park Service has displaced um, would be coming forward saying, work with us, collaborate us. We are asking for co-governance to protect these 2 million acres of land adjacent to Canyonlands National Park as our home ground, as our ceremonial grounds, as our grounds where our ancestors' bones are buried, where our medicines are found. And I'm hoping that that our president who cares about um, displaced people, people of color, diverse communities, especially in our national parks, will, will see this wisdom and see it as a great healing between Native people, the tribes, and the United States government, even the National Park Service at this centennial. Yeah, you talk about um, an evolving idea of national parks. That's important because there's been a history of opposition in the creation of federal lands um, and in their maintenance, too. So even uh, the, the uh, standoff in Mallor Wildlife Refuge or the reclamation in 1969 of Alcatraz Island by American Indian activists, like these are, these are both arguments that are happening about the creation of federal land. But more generally, even among people who support this, you write about this mission rivalry of protection versus use, preservation versus education, cultural versus environmental. So where in our parks do you see that tension playing out more strongly? Well, I always think Utah is the most contentious place on the planet, and I know that's not true. Bears Ears is an example of that. Even though our governor and Rob Bishop, our congressman, are directly opposed, 
Um, we even had our Senator Orrin Hatch threaten that there would be violence should this happen. I think that's irresponsible. And, you know, although you made the parallel between the Bundys and Malheur with the American Indian takeover in Alcatraz in the 70s, I would argue they're very different. Um, the Native people um, at Alcatraz were claiming the rock as, as their own home ground, and I think that had very different political implications. However, I do think what you're saying about the conflict over public lands and those who want to take the public out of that um, to where their private lands is really problematic, and I think we have to have... Uh, serious conversations that can only be collaborative. And I think we have to listen to one another and really look hard at the story that each constituency is telling, and then maybe come up with a new story, a different narrative. Can you talk a little bit more about art's relation to our national parks, especially photography and writing? Well, on the cover of the book, we have Carlton Watkins' image very dramatic image of El Capitan, and that was taken in 1860. Those were the images by Carlton Walkers, by Moybridge, by all of these early photographers that went to Abraham Lincoln in the 1860s to say, we need to protect this beautiful place called Yosemite. And it was Abraham Lincoln who, in 1864, created the Yosemite Land Grant. It was the first time where public lands were brought into the public commons. And the photographies were hugely responsible for that. In the same way that today, you know, we have great photographers who are showing us why these things matter. A Navajo photographer, Will Wilson, who has a brilliant photograph in the book of three Navajo men wearing gas masks standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. That image says so much about regional haze, about air pollution, about Peabody coal, and what's at stake. So I think art bypasses rhetoric and pierces the heart. We not only see it, but we feel it. And it goes beyond words. So there's this great anecdote in the book where you find yourself giving a reading at a spa to two elderly women who turn out to be none other than Lady Bird Johnson and Liz Carpenter. Um, <laughs> it was very, very funny um, and moving, too. And I want to read what Lady Bird Johnson said to you. It ties into this idea of art bypassing rhetoric and, and piercing the heart. So she says, beautiful language isn't enough. You have to be very smart about what you are doing when talking about the environment. You have to reach people where they are, not where you are. You must find out what they care about and build relationships with them, involve them in your cause. Then you can speak like a writer. But until then, you must speak like one of them. Do you wrestle with that question? You know, that really changed my life. And I'll never forget we were at this crazy Austin Lake spa, and all I had to do was show up in a bathrobe and give a reading to whoever came. And you're absolutely right. Two elderly women showed up, and, you know, one looked familiar, um, but I thought, this will be easy. I'm with my sister-in-law. So I give this reading from Red about Utah's Red Desert. And at the end, she says, Why, Miss Williams? That's very, very beautiful. But now you tell me in real terms, for real people, why this land matters to you. Forgive my accent. But then, you know, you quoted her statement, and I wrote every word down. And I do think that's the challenge. And I think when climate change bears on us and a divided country 
how do we speak in a language that can touch our hearts? And I, th- I think it's through storytelling. The other thing that was really interesting to me is Lady Bird Johnson said, you know, that she would never forgive Lyndon's men who made her call her environmental agenda a beautification project. But then she said, I got much further by talking about beauty than I would have the end of development. So the national parks are a really old idea. They were founded just after the Battle of Gettysburg 100 years ago. They're part of a line of environmental thinking that goes back to John Muir. And climate change on a global scale wasn't even dreamed of then. So what kind of role does this past understanding have to play in their future? I would argue one thing. I actually think that America's national parks are a very new idea um, in the in the scope of history, and I think it's a radical idea. I think the fact that President Obama just created Stonewall National Monument on the heels of Orlando was very, very significant and powerful, and we'll look back historically as, as a moment met. And right now, I keep dreaming of this triple crown that through the Antiquities Act of 1906, um, President Obama could create the Maine Woods National Monument, that he could create the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge as a monument to protect the Native people there and their livelihood, the Gwich'in people, the Athabascan people, the Inupiaq people, and Bears Ears on the edge of Canyonlands. To me, this is a National Park Service for the future. A lot of the collaboration that we've seen between these different groups is new. And in some ways, the idea of the national parks, as you said earlier, was kind of radical for its time too, like putting aside national lands to not be used, especially in the age of industrialism. That was crazy. In in this country, we seem to base everything on economics. How much money can we make? And I think what we're realizing now is, ultimately, it's not about money. Greed is killing us. It's isolating us. And I think what we really need is to learn how to listen. And if we can learn to listen to the land, we can learn to listen to each other. And I think this book really allowed me to think about what are the stories that we privilege and who benefits from those stories. I mean, you could go to Gettysburg National Battlefield um, a few years ago and never hear the word slavery. It was only about strategies, war, munitions, and generals. Now that's not the case. And that really was largely due to leaders within the African-American communities, um, politicians, and historians that said there's a deeper story here, there's a wider story here, and that story needs to be told. And that is the story of slavery. Were there any other national parks whose narratives have changed significantly in the past decades? You know, I think Effigy Mound's narrative has shifted. There was a a very ugly situation where um, a former superintendent just bulldozed right through a burial ground, and many of those bones were found in garages. Bridges are, are trying to be built. The new superintendent has been very mindful of that, and Albert LeBeau, the cultural manager there, who's Lakota, has reached out to the various tribes um, as an archaeologist and is really balancing those two worlds. And I think in Glacier National Park, the story is changing. It may be that within 15 years, there will be no more glaciers. 
after a park that was named after them. There's 15 active glaciers that remain. Um, that story is also widening with the Blackfeet there. If you go to Glacier National Park, that is now also an international park, you see the American flag, you see the Canadian flag, and you see the Blackfoot flag. Thanks so much, Terry, for talking with us. So for your closing words, could you read an excerpt from the last chapter of your book? Yes, and first of all, thank you. So here's my last comment. We the people have made mistakes. We have made mistakes in our relationships with those who came before us and the land that holds their histories. We have made mistakes in how we have managed and misunderstood the wild. But after spending a lifetime immersed in our national parks, I believe we are slowly learning what it means to offer our reverence and respect to the closest thing we as America's citizens have to sacred lands. Our national parks are places of recognition. When I see a mountain lion's tracks on pink sand in the desert, I am both predator and prey. When I see the elusive Everglade kite hovering above the sawgrass, I am that manifestation of hope and survival. And when I visit the Women's Rights National Historic Park in Seneca Falls, New York, and listen to Sojourner Truth speech, Ain't I a Woman?, her voice becomes the voice I want to cultivate in the name of courage. We are at a crossroads. We can continue on the path we have been on, in this nation that privileges profit over people and land, or we can unite as citizens with a common cause, the health and wealth of the earth that sustains us. If we cannot commit to this kind of fundamental shift in our relationship to people and place, then democracy becomes another myth perpetuated by those in power who care only about themselves. Our national parks are part of the open space of democracy. The Hour of Land is a gorgeous book, destined to introduce you to at least a few new national parks. Read it, get inspired, and then go visit them. And if you need more reading material while you're there, check out our summer cover story, The Taming of the Wild, a humorous but still serious essay about our changing ideas of nature and the importance of uselessness. Snakes. Few among us love them. Many of us fear them, but how many of us have actually met one? Even the most famous American snake, the rattlesnake. Timber rattlers, as they're known colloquially, are found in 31 states and on the outskirts of many major metropolitan areas. And Ted Levin's new book, America's Snake, is a love letter to the rattler in all its sizes and colors. Levin is an award-winning nature writer who is maybe just a little bit too fond of snakes. I asked him to make a case for the rattlesnake. Why should we care that it's endangered? Why should we protect it? It's so slithery. This is Ted Levin, and I'm here to talk about the rise and fall of the timber rattlesnake. It was the first snake in the New World, first reptile in the Western Hemisphere that was classified by Linnaeus, who gave it the scientific name 
crotalus hardus, and the hardus has absolutely nothing to do with its personality and everything to do with its rough, scaly, raised-ridged texture. They are not nearly as dangerous as people often erroneously portray them to be. Less than five people die a year from snake bites in the United States. More than 30 people died last year from dog maulings, and more than 20 people died from recalcitrant farm animals. They're inoffensive, so inoffensive that I've taken my children um, from the ages of about five and six with me into the field to look at snakes. And as long as they listen and don't make any sudden startling movements, uh, the snakes were fine. They stayed and did their thing, which is mostly sort of sitting and waiting. Timber rattlesnakes are an iconic predator. Here in the Northeast, they prey principally on white-footed mice and chipmunks. Both of those small mammals are the principal reservoir hosts for Lyme disease. So if for no other reason, uh, one would want to make sure that you have an ample population of timber rattlesnakes to uh, dampen the outbreak of Lyme disease. But they should be protected for other reasons, too. They're gorgeous. They're long-lived. They're site tenacious. They come back to the same sites to hibernate. Very few snakes ever change their dens. They communicate with centrails that we cannot see and we cannot detect. They see a color, infrared, that we don't see. So they have, they're far more fascinating than they've been portrayed. There's a lot more going on in the world of timber rattlesnakes, and I would assume all other species of rattlesnakes, than generally meets the eye and the average uh, citizen has ever stopped to consider. I just think they belong because they evolved here. This short reading is from the prologue of America's Snake. When it comes to eliciting sympathy, it's the back of the line for rattlesnakes, creatures seemingly with, face it, not much personality. One could argue that our squeamishness at the sight of a snake began with the story in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis, but it also may be coded in our genes, suggests Harvard biologist E.O. Wilson. Humans, says Wilson, could be hardwired to fear snakes. In Africa, where our closest primate kin have multiple predators to fear, Chimpanzees have been observed shadowing dangerous snakes at a safe distance, staring and hollering. Charles Darwin even weighed in on the same issue of aphidiophobia. I took a stuffed snake into the monkey house, and the hair on several of the species instantly became erect, he wrote in 1872 in The Descent of Man. Though timber rattlesnakes rarely harm humans or domestic animals, Americans nevertheless have a long history of organized efforts to collect and eliminate them. In 1680, a Massachusetts hunter could earn two shillings a day killing timber rattlesnakes. And beginning in 1740, Massachusetts chose one day each fall for a community-wide hunt called the rattlesnake bee, which took place in towns across the state. In 1810, hunters in Pennsylvania strapped powder horns to rattlesnakes lit them, and released them back into their dens. In 1849, in Madison County, Iowa, teams competed for the most snakes killed. The prize for the winning team? Two bushels of corn. Bounties were paid for rattlesnakes in New York and Vermont into the early 1970s. Twenty-five years ago, I visited a Vermont town clerk to examine old rattlesnake records. Why? she asked. Would anyone care? That was a hard question to answer. 
I had just driven an hour and a half to learn something about the snakes and the people of western Vermont, maybe something about the hard rock ledges. I found it difficult to articulate what I was after. She pressed me again. It's not every day someone comes in here to talk about snakes. I don't even know where that book is. She apparently found it hard to say the word rattlesnake. I saw this one spring crossing a road near the Blatsky River. I can't stand to look at him. A man in a three-piece suit walked into the clerk's office. He was in a hurry. Hey, Bob, the clerk said. This guy wants to know about rattlesnakes. Finally, she had said the word, hanging on to the A's and T's as though she were shaking a castanet. Until that moment, I hadn't thought that the word rattle or rattlesnake onomatopoetically. Bob apparently didn't like rattlesnakes either. He said he'd killed one in East Steeple, not far from Crystal Lake, a couple of years previously, whacked off its head with a hoe. No one wanted to touch the bounty book, so I collected it myself. What I found was that between 1899 and 1904, 241 timber rattlesnakes were bountied, a dollar apiece. The earliest bounty was paid on May 9th and the latest on October 19th. Of the 241 snakes listed, 62 were killed between May 9th and May 31st, and 154 after August 21st, when the snakes, including Young of the Year, had returned to their dens. This seasonal pattern confirmed that timber rattlesnakes go to bed early and wake up late. One snake hunter, Andy Howard, collected the $1 bounty on 196 rattlesnakes during that five-year period. According to the town clerk, Andy liked liquor, and the bounty payments warmed the long, cold winters. So he made it his business to find snake dens. On September 13, 1902, he killed 37 rattlesnakes. Only 25 snakes were bountied from early June to mid-August. This is not too surprising. Timber rattlesnakes need the ice to melt and the soil to warm before they're ready to expend energy on growth to leave the vicinity of their dens for the wooded ridge, where they lie in wait for mice and chipmunks. To find one in the summer is a matter of chance. Great chance. There were no records from 1905 to 1947. After 1947, 64 snakes were killed in a 20-year period ending in 1967. With so few snakes to record, the bounty book began noting the length of each snake and the number of rattle segments, the longest was four and a half feet. In some regions of the country, snake killing is still sanctioned. As recently as 1989, Claremont, Texas, now a ghost town, held its 41st and final Peace Officers Rattlesnake Shoot, in which law enforcement officers and other contestants competed for points by shooting live rattlesnakes. A shooter was awarded 10 points for a headshot, five for a body shot. Prizes were given for five categories, Masters, first place, second place, third place, and guest. That's it for our episode of Smarty Pants. Hopefully you've been introduced to a new national park. You've reconsidered your views on rattlesnakes. Maybe you've been drinking a little bit of some Napa Cabernet Sauvignon while listening. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek, and I'll see you here in two weeks. In the meantime, take care and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.